0: All right, welcome back to the Southern Courtroom. I've never wanted to wear shorts more in my entire life, (laughs) which I just don't do. (laughs) So you'll rarely catch me in shorts, but I kind of wish I had some on today. Okay, it is hot, so um, bear with me. You guys have done a great job so far of hanging in there, fanning. And so, um, so hang in there. I am probably hotter than you (laughs) right now. (laughs) So uh, I did want to say it's good to be back. I was away on vacation for two weeks, so I thought I would at least say I was only up in front of the congregation for like five minutes last week, but that's kind of when it hit me. I was really excited and happy to be here to see all the people that I've gotten to know over the course of the last five months or so. So I missed you while I was away, and uh, I just want to thank you on behalf of Steve and me for just like welcoming us and for, um, loving us and for caring for us and for allowing us to love you a little bit, even though we're not going to be here for a long time. So, um, I just appreciate that. Thank you. I thank God, um, for you and just wanted everyone to know that. Okay. First Corinthians five verses one through 13. You know, I think that, um, one of the most well-known Bible verses and probably the most often quoted Bible verse is Matthew seven, one judge, not that you may not be judged. Or I still remember it in the King James, right? Judge not lest ye be judged. And I think whether you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian, I think both know this verse and could pull it out as sort of like your um, ace in the hole. This is like a trump card that you can lay down anytime anybody gets too personal, anytime somebody starts to ask you questions about what you worship, about who you're sleeping with, or about how you spend your money. Hey, judge not, judge not. And um, even though the verse actually means don't judge other people so that you won't be judged by God, um, and there's a whole lot of other things going on there, we kind of rip it out of context, and we make it into a binding um, contract between us and other people. We sort of have like a tacit agreement. We're like, okay, if you don't judge me, I'm not going to judge you. And I won't judge you, and you don't judge me. And what we've done in one verse is we have given ourselves an excuse, one, not to open up to other people, and two, not to allow anybody to get too close to us. We've effectually isolated ourselves, we've cut ourselves from others, we've given ourselves an excuse um, for not engaging people on a deeper level, for remaining superficial, And there's a lot of reasons for this. I mean, it's easy to remain superficial, but there's even more than that going on. There's even more than just the easiness of remaining superficial. I think that um, many of you may be afraid of what the other person may think of you. If you're going to question them about something that's really difficult, or if you open up and confess that you're struggling with some sin that's difficult. I think others of you don't believe that change is possible. You may have given up. You may have even written the other person off. I think all of us, at one time or one way or one or another, are um, indifferent or complacent or have allowed, to, to, allowed ourselves to um, grow apathetic.? Okay? But here's the real problem: When you remain superficial in relationships with others in the church, you allow yourself to condone sin and you allow other people to cultivate sin when the real thing that you should be doing is challenging and confronting sin. And it's a hard passage, make no mistake. Paul is not mincing any words and the reason we need to challenge sin is because sin it's not simply a bad choice it's not like one bad choice it's not simply a bad habit it is uh, as Jeff said earlier lawlessness before God it's breaking not only one of God's commands but severing your relationship with him the God who created you to worship him and that's a dangerous thing to do when when it's, it's like you're attempting to live life without him and what you're doing then, you're like running away from what you're created to be. Sin is a real inhuman thing to do. It doesn't make sense. And, what, and it's dangerous because what sin tries to do is it works as a force that will capture you. It will enslave you. It will punish you. And in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 1 through 13, the, the passage that we're looking at today, Paul says this. He says, because the Christian has been redeemed from sin... You have been redeemed from slavery to sin. In fact, just for that very reason, you must continue to confront and continue to challenge sin. You see, in his death on the cross... And in his resurrection from the dead, Jesus won final victory over sin. And he took you out of one kingdom, out of slavery, out of bondage. And he put you into his kingdom. And he he, he transformed you and cleanses you from all the effects of sin. So from all of its guilt, all of its fear, all of its shame. And he places you into a new community, the church, where you gather together with others who are also cleansed. And in that community, Paul says unmistakably... You have new spiritual authority, you have new spiritual power to judge, as long as we define what that means. Okay, we do need to pack it just a little bit. Here's what what I want to do today, is I want to look at um, how confronting sin works. And I want to go through three points. First of all, confronting sin, so basically, like, what does confronting sin do? Okay, one, it restores the sinner. Two, it preserves and protects the purity of the church, and three, and finally, it reflects our true identity as people who trust in and worship the risen Savior. Okay, so let's go. Look at verses one through five first. Confronting sin restores the sinner. Confronting sin restores the sinner. All right, we got to get into the situation. What's happening at Corinth? I told you Corinth was going to get crazy. Did I not? I told you. Okay, it's crazy now. A man, look at verse 1, has his father's wife. Okay, So we're dealing with incest. It's not a very pretty picture. And the phrasing would seem to indicate that it's not the guy's mom. The mother has probably, the first wife has either died or been divorced. But nonetheless, the man is sleeping and having sex continuously with his father's wife. And aside from just like the ew factor, <laughs> sort of like, that's gross <laughs> factor. Uh, there's three reasons why Paul would have been totally shocked. And shock and outrage comes out in these in his verses. Okay, first of all, this type of relationship was forbidden in the Old Testament. Paul is steeped in the Old Testament. If you want to go back and look at it, um, the people of God did not do this sort of behavior. Read Leviticus 18, um, verses 7 and 8. Secondly, if that's not enough, he says, look, this behavior wasn't even tolerated among pagans. So it's happening, I mean, you could go back and read like some passages of Cicero, and we think of the ancient Roman world as having very loose morals, very lax standards. But even there, those guys drew the line somewhere, and it was right there at incest. Thirdly, and maybe the most disturbing thing that's happening here, is that the Corinthians are proud about what they're doing. They're boasting, they're arrogant. He says, um, you are proud when you should have, if you look in verse two, been in mourning and removing the person from you. So what's happening is there's nothing in this case that separates the church from the world. There's nothing separating the church and marketing it out as, as distinct. There's nothing marking marking, out as as new. In fact, the, the, the church is not only upholding a better standard than the world, and it's not even holding the world's actual standards, it's holding worse and less standards. So people that were in the church were doing behavior that even their neighbors would have found offensive. And that's inconceivable to Paul, regardless... Of why they may have arrived here in the first place. And there's all sorts of speculation. Um, It may have been because um, they were flaunting their Christian freedom. We're saved in Christ, we can do whatever we want. Or it may have been they thought we're so spiritual, we don't really have to worry about what's happening in our bodies. That's another option. I personally kind of think that it was probably a wealthy, sophisticated, educated member of the church who was engaged in this behavior and they were afraid to confront him because he was a prominent member. That's a little bit of speculation. In any case, the sin that we're dealing with here, it's flagrant, it's ongoing, it's condoned, and they celebrate it. And Paul's response is unequivocal. Look at verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you and he says the same thing or something similar four times so if you look at verse 5 verse 11 verse 13 expel the immoral brother from among you so in other words the question is not should a person who is habitually living in flagrant sin and remaining unrepentant be disciplined that's not the question the question is how and why and I think that'll shed some light on what's happening here, okay? In other words, the church has a right to remove people from its presence. Let me, like, throw an illustration in here. Actually, secular groups work the same way, okay? So even from a human perspective, a group has a right to remove members from its group if those members aren't abiding by the, by the rules and laws of the group. Like, think about it. Okay, imagine you want to be a member of PETA. Uh, Julie and I were trying to think of what that stands for. Preservation for society, for the preservation of the ethical treatment of animals. Is that right? Somebody nod. I know it's hot. Okay, good. Thank you, Talitha. Okay. Say you want to join that group and you join it and everybody in there is trying to stop people from mistreating animals. But after a while, you kind of have a change of heart and you decide I'm going to start hunting and I'm going to start carrying my gun to the group. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I'm not just going to hunt like game animals. I'm going to start shooting dogs. (laughs) Okay, I offended half the congregation. (laughs) More offensive even than Paul's writing. Sorry that I attacked your dogs. Okay. What would the group do though? Here's the point. What are they gonna do to that person? We've had a change of heart, we've had a separation of ways. You are you're endorsing something that's the exact opposite of what we're endorsing. We are going to kick you out of the group, right? You can't do this. So even secular groups work this way, and they would, in fact, oh man, the, the PETA guys would go crazy, wouldn't they? They would go nuts. And um, the church has the same right from a human level, but it also has more. It has spiritual authority and spiritual power, and I want to talk about that now. Here's how the church works and how it's a little bit different from a secular organization. First of all, look at what these guys do. They rely on apostolic authority, not on whim. This is not a human preference. This is not just like, hey, it would be nice. I don't really like it when you do that. That's what that whole section about Paul sending himself and being present in the spirit is about. They're judging people based on a standard that comes straight from Paul. And we have access to the same standard in the written word of God as we read the Bible. Okay? So they're judging based on a human standard. I, I mean, on, uh, on, a, on a Holy Spirit standard, not a human standard. Two. They gather as a community, which I think is important, because it's not like they are, um, it's not a secret meeting. This is not a secret tribunal or some kind of hidden judgment, nor is it just an argument between one person and the other. Paul says, this is a public sin. You're putting it in people's faces. Therefore, we're going to gather the whole church together, and we're going to do something as a church about it. And then thirdly, they do something that the peter folks wouldn't do that is we they hand the man over to satan okay which is a perplexing phrase and we have to work through it and try to understand it the best that we can And it most likely means that they will remove this person from the safe sphere of the church. So the church is like one sphere. It's like one realm. It's like one kingdom where God's protection reigns, where God's blessings reign, where people find healing, where people find help, where people find hope. And they're saying, we're going to take you out of those comforts. And put you out into another realm. And so this realm of the church is the realm of Jesus Christ. And this other sphere or kingdom or realm, whatever you want to call it, is the realm not of Jesus Christ. It's the realm where you are exposed and open to the attacks of Satan, to the taunting of Satan, to the temptations of Satan, to the fears of Satan, to the condemnation that Satan will level at you. And, um, but why? 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 And this is key. It is not for the destruction of the person. There's a very important word in there. It's not for the... If you look back at the verse, it's not for the destruction of the person, but for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And for Paul, flesh always means your old way of thinking. Flesh always means self-sufficiency, self-reliance, life lived apart from God without depending upon him. And Paul says, that's what I want to have. That's what I want to be rid of. That's what I want to get rid of. That's what I want to stop. That's what I want to put an end to. He doesn't want the destruction of the individual or the death of the individual. He's saying, we're removing you from protection and we're putting you to this other realm so that you will come to the end of your rope so that you will see that self-sufficiency will not lead you to the living God. And in a lot of senses, this is like an intervention. It's like what you do with a heroin addict, right? You take the heroin addict and sometimes, say you have a heroin addict and he's living with his parents and the parents keep feeding him money and fueling the addiction. At the very end, after we've tried everything else, what do you have to do? Kick him out, tough love, onto the street. Why? Not so that he will die, but so that he'll come back humbled and changed in a different person. And it's exactly what Paul has in mind, the restoration of the sinner. Now, let's go ahead. Let's start to apply this. Let's start even before we get to the end. And I think you can apply this on like a large church-wide level and then also on an individual level. And I want to spend a lot of time later talking to you about how you can apply this in your individual relationships. But let's start at the church. The church has to practice discipline. And that's something the American church has largely abandoned, but it's desperately needed. And, and if you want to read more about this, look at um, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. I mean, there's a way to go about this. You don't start by removing people from the church. You start with one person going to another person saying, I've noticed this sin. And then if that person isn't listening, you bring another person along. And if they're still not listening, you bring the whole church in or go to the elders. And, um, this is something that Liberty as a church affirms. It's something that, um, it's one of the reasons why we have elders. It's why we have in covenant process. It's why we have, why you take vows. It's not because we're trying to be like authoritarian. It's not because we're trying to be some kind of institution. It's because in taking those vows, you are binding yourself to one another so that we can pick you up when you fall so that we can find ways to help you and work for your good and help to heal you, and help to restore you. And truly interesting. See, this seems very harsh, doesn't it? How could Paul possibly dare to think that he wants to remove somebody from the church? But the only way he could do that is if you affirm the strength and the beauty and the glory of the church. If the church isn't a wonderful haven of rest, a respite from the storms of life, a place where, few, uh, where people are fed and renewed and encouraged and taken to Christ, then kicking them out doesn't do any good. Do you see what I mean? It wouldn't mean anything. And so you have to ask yourself, like, I think the, the, the cutting question, there's really two. One is, do we have the guts to approach people who are sinning and deal with sin on a sin level and on a Jesus level and on a grace level? And the second question is, if we told someone to go away from our church, would it hurt them so badly that they, they came back? Because they had to have what we were offering. I'm not sure how you'd answer that question. It's kind of a biting question. It's really easy in America. What happens if you remove someone from the church? They just go to another church. <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of how it works. So there's a perplexing problem. But the, the underlying fundamental pr- principle remains and can be applied. And it is, is our church a haven for those who are weak and weary? Okay, number two. Confronting sin preserves the purity of the church. I think one of the most interesting things about the passage is that Paul spends more time talking to the church than he does to the person who's caught in sin. He cares about what's happening to the church at a corporate level, as much as he does the individual sinner. And that's because he wants to preserve the church's purity. And he uses a couple of metaphors for this. Look at verse six and seven. He compares sin to leaven that works its way through an entire uh, ball of dough. So you take just a little pinch and you put it in and it works its way through the whole thing. And then he changes the metaphor in verse 7 and 8. And he shifts it slightly and he says, the church is the unleavened bread of God. It is like um, Old Testament Israel, the people who are leaving from Egypt during the Passover. And then in verses 9 through 13, he corrects an error in their thinking. He had written them something similar before, and they basically said, well, like if we try to remove ourselves from people who are sinning, we can't even go into the world. And Paul says, no, that's not what I'm talking about at all. Christians don't separate themselves from the world. He's not supporting monasticism. He's not supporting asceticism. On the contrary, they have the responsibility to engage on a deeper level with those who are in the church. And um that doesn't mean that we go around. So what he's saying is you don't pull yourself out of the world, nor do you go out into the world and lead with confronting sin. It's not the first thing you say to somebody if you want to tell them about Jesus. And again, if you're not a Christian here today and you've had folks who lead with this, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, and all of those sorts of things, I just apologize on behalf of the church, because we do that. Um, You know, we, we do that quite a bit. We lead with the confrontation of sin rather than with inviting people into the presence of Jesus and to see the restoration that comes through him. So we live in the world, but here's the catch. We live remarkably different lives. We are a radically new community. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about what that community should look like. And flesh out what I just said in case there's any confusion. The church has to be radically new. It has to be a new community. It has to be countercultural um, in this way. It can't look like the world because the message that we have to say to the world is, in some senses, the thing that Steve and I have been kind of hammering home over the last four or five weeks. It's an offensive message in and of itself. There is a repugnancy to the message despite your delivery or despite the way that you emphasize it. And that's because the message attacks self-sufficient, self-reliant people who are hell-bent on loving themselves. And you can't look the gospel in the face. Like I said a few weeks ago, you can't look the cross in the face. You can't look the resurrection and say, yes, I'm going to remain living for myself. I'm going to remain self-infatuated and self-absorbed. And it's offensive to all of us. It's offensive to all of us, me included, because we love ourselves. And I heard one pastor say this recently. If you have a repugnant message, you absolutely must have an attractive community. If you have an offensive message, you have to have an attractive community. And and that applies to your morals and your morality. If you're kind of, that's for all of you who want to have an attractive community that's like filled with social activism and service to the poor. It also includes and involves your your behavior and your ethics and your morality. But it also includes acts of service for all of those who aren't too concerned with service and are just sort of moralists ourselves. You see see what I mean? We have to, we, we go out... As a radically new people who have been changed, we love each other. We love people around us. We love them with kindness and with gentleness and with maturity and with all the character traits of Christ and with deeds of service and acts of kindness. Why? So that they will listen to the message. And the church, man, church, we um, get this wrong. We a lot of times what we do is we try to make the message attractive by watering it down and the offense of the gospel. And and, and our lives are like all out of whack and out of order and out of service and we don't even know our neighbors, let alone love them. Okay, I told you that this works on a a micro level too, so I want to talk a little bit about um, individual Christians. The principles start with individuals within the church and I've I've become convinced myself that this is something that Liberty needs to hear. Um, Christ is calling you to push past superficiality in your relationships and to deepen your relationships within the church and to start interacting with others um, on a gospel level and on a sin level and on a Jesus level. Let me explain what this means. Last week I was um, in North Carolina and I was visiting a friend that I hadn't seen in a long time. And uh, we had like an hour and a half long conversation. And the whole time my wife and I realized, he seems depressed. He's kind of struggling. Something's wrong. And and as I noticed, the more I noticed something was wrong, the more I noticed how much we talked about everything else. Have you ever been in a conversation like that? And we talked about all sorts of things that we felt comfortable with. Hey, how liberal is your church? How conservative is it? I can't tell you how many times we used those words, which are so overused. (laughs) But I felt comfortable talking about that. And we talked about things that we like to do and things that we like about our churches and like about our pastors and like about studying. And we talked about our plans for the future and future study and future things that we want to do. But it was hard to get into the, but where is the Holy Spirit at work in your life level? To say, what do you really believe about Jesus right now? What are you really suffering from? What are you really struggling with? And it was actually Julie who kind of broke the ice, as Julie will do. (laughs) Everyone needs to get to know Julie. She said, in a very sort of, uh, (laughs) she just said, hey, you seem depressed. (laughs) She cuts the chase (laughs) and all of that superficiality kind of went away and we ended up having to have another hour and a half conversation, which was the real conversation. How has Jesus been encouraging you? What do you believe about Jesus? How can we help you? Are you free? And what I hope is a productive and helpful conversation. But what I want to tell you is I understand that it's easy to remain at the superficial level in our conversations and in our relationships. But what Paul is calling us here, it's easy to read this passage and say, that's church discipline. That applies only to the elders. They're the only ones that have to worry about this. But Paul is saying that also applies to you. You need to be able to look into the lives of others and ask hard questions and to probe a little bit. And to express your concern for them, yes, gently. And you also need to be willing to open up to people if you're struggling with sin. And liberty is wonderful because we have community groups. And community groups' um, home meetings are designed to be a place where this can happen. But some people still complain and say, it's just not happening. So the setup is there. You get in a group of five or seven people. You talk about the Bible. You rely on that authority there. And then you talk about your problems. You even break up into men and women to pray for each other and to work things out. But sometimes people will come to me and say, we're just not getting there. We're still not We're not having these authentic relationships. And the challenge and the the push that Paul is going to give you and that I'd like to give you a little bit is, if you are saying that or if you know that or if you're feeling that, God is calling you to open up, start to confess. You be the one who gets it going, especially for leaders. If you're a leader, there's no better way to get your folks to talk about some sin or some issue that you're dealing with than to say, hey, this is what I've been dealing with. Okay. But it doesn't excuse everybody else. If you see somebody who's depressed, down, suffering, struggling, you are in in Christ. You have the right and the authority and the privilege to ask them some hard questions to start to get into it and to push them towards confession and repentance and healing and help again this is not for their hurt this is for their good and for their restoration and so i encourage you to do that and what mike said last week in his sermon was very helpful you can't assume the gospel right what we do is we assume now that person knows this already that person knows how jesus applies to the situation or a bible uh, you know a passage that applies to the situation you can't assume that you have to you have to probe and delve and get there Okay, a, a couple caveats on that really quickly. Um, Paul is not saying that, that there won't be struggles. This is not about perfectionism. This is not about a perfect church. This is about people struggling in sin together to remove the sin from among them, to help and to, to heal each other, to trust in Christ and bring repentance. And I'm not asking to, for anybody to become sort of a thought police, which is like going around trying to like hunt for sins or look for sins. If that's you, you do need to go back and read Matthew 7 in its context, which says... (laughs) Which says, don't do that. (laughs) It says, figure out where you're wrong first. And don't do this based on preference, based on on a standard that comes not from you, um, but from God. You see, you always do this by remaining aware that you're a sinner yourself. That you're a sinner yourself, depending upon the spirit and clinging to the cross. And that, that brings us to the last point. And the most hopeful, I pray, and helpful point. Confronting sin ultimately reflects... Our true identity. It reflects our true identity. See, this is a far cry for moralism. That's why I love verse seven and eight. You can't get out of here without reading verse seven and eight. Paul says, he tells them what to do, clean out the old leaven. And then he catches himself as if he can't go two words without following it up with what comes next. He says, because you are really already unleavened and then to make sure you don't miss it he makes the point explicitly clear christ our passover has been sacrificed therefore let us celebrate the festival the foundation for your ability to confront sin is your identity in christ and what christ has already done for you see paul says you are unleavened become unleavened you have become cleansed in christ therefore clean the 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 passover lamb has been sacrificed for you Therefore, you have the power to fight against and defeat sin if you have been made alive in Christ. Or to put it another way, what God has done in you and what he's calling you to do can't be separated. One commentator that I was reading this week put it this way. He said, the sum of the Christian life is to become what you already are. Become what you already are. And if you are a Christian, you are raised with Christ. If you're a Christian, you have been made new. And have all of his benefits and all of his blessings poured out upon you. Redemption, forgiveness, healing, peace, inheritance, hope, all joy, thanksgiving, all of those things. And if you're not a Christian, that's what's being offered to you in Jesus. It's the free offer of a cleansing and a healing and a power that will renew and transform you. He's calling you to become what you are. Julie and I were talking about this, and we were kind of wrestling through some analogies of how to explain this. And I thought of marriage because I was at a wedding ceremony yesterday. And um, the person that has been married has a a radically different identity. They have been fundamentally changed. They will never be the same. They're now joined to another person. And so before, the man might have gone to a bar and hung out with seven women, and no one would have cared. Maybe they would have. I don't know. (laughs) Seven maybe is a little much. But after he's been married, he wouldn't continue to do the same behavior because he has been transformed. He's a new person. He has a new identity. Suddenly, it wouldn't make sense for him to do those same things. The same thing, once you're, like Paul's been saying, if you're, when you're young, you play with toys and watch kids' videos and do all sorts of things associated with being young. But once you're older and you're an adult, if the adult goes back and starts doing things that little kids do, sitting around playing with Legos or whatever, there's maybe something wrong. Actually, I kind of like Legos. That might not have been a good, good example. The point is, Jesus has transformed the Christian. And this is what Paul has been saying the entire time. Paul has pointed them to all of the blessings that come in Christ. And you go through the first four ver- chapters. I don't have time to go through the whole thing, but just think of all those things. He tells them, you're the temple of God. You're brothers. You're called. You are purchased by the blood of Christ. Those things are true of You. Therefore, find your hope and your help and your healing in Christ. When you are um, weighed down by a sin, do you first think of that? I think what happens is we get sin obsessed, right? We start to say, I've got to stop doing this, I've got to stop doing this, I've got to stop doing this. But what, Christ, what Paul is calling you to do is to remember who you are in Jesus And to turn to him, um, I read one quote by a guy named Tim Lane, who says, uh, says this, you don't worship your way into sin. So you have to worship your way out of it. You can't hate. That's the end of the quote. You can't hate your sin without loving something more. And the thing to set your affection on, the only thing worthy of your affection is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who is our Redeemer. And there's no formula for this, but what I would invite you to do is just ask the Holy Spirit to give you opportunities. So sit back today and sort of think, are there people in my life who are struggling and need help that I can go to and have a more open conversation? I learned a very helpful tactic from your very own Jeff Bradford in my three weeks with him. One thing Jeff is great at, he was just great at, is he would say um, he would be having a superficial conversation for like 45 seconds or something. That's probably about as superficial as Jeff Bradford is. He's got about 45 seconds worth. And then he would say, hey, do do you guys notice that? Or do you remember? Maybe you'd have to go hang out and talk to him. he would say, hey, I'd like to ask you about this. And he would just use that one word. And I knew that was like his cue for changing the conversation because it's really awkward. You almost have to have a strategy. You got to go, you can't do this accidentally. You have to intend. If you, if you think it's accidentally going to happen that you're going to confront someone when they're sin or get into a deep conversation, it never will. You have to have a little strategy. And I just picked that up from him. So when I'm going out and I'm sort of pastoring or whatever it is that I do, and I'm talking to people and want to have a more intentional conversation, notice I'll say and after I usually I've got much more superficiality in me. So I'll go for like 10 or 15 minutes and then I'll say, Hey, what I really want to talk to you about. It's this, and it's very helpful um, in pushing and getting in. Ask ask the spirit to give you opportunities to do that this week. One person to talk to, one person to open up to, one person who can help you, one person who will be there um, through the struggle and through the and 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 to uh, to really work some of this out and practice it out. I want to end with this. When I was a teacher, it was uh, I want to go back to judging. It was very easy to let a kid who put his head on the desk, keep the head on the desk. I know some of you are teachers out there and what happens is a kid who has given up puts his head on the desk and what do teachers do? I may have used this analogy before, it's one of my favorites, so if I have, I apologize. But um, it's very easy and tempting to just let the kid put his head on the desk. Why? Because if you wake that kid up, there's gonna be trouble. If you stir him up, there's gonna be a problem. It's gonna be messy and complicated and you have to deal with things that you wouldn't have had to otherwise and you wouldn't have wanted to. But here's the deal. The teacher has not only a right, but the authority and the obligation to judge the kid with his head on his desk, who's not learning anything, he's not participating in the community, and to wake him up and to remind him and to say, you are a student, to remind them of their identity, and to say, lovingly and helpfully, become a part of this class, even if it's difficult, even with the challenges, And um, how much more should Christians in the church stop letting each other sleep in class, if we are, and start spurring one another on uh, to faith and worship and obedience? Uh, Let's pray. Thanks, you guys. That was hot. Uh, Lord, we, um, we just come before you and we ask that you would give us the ability and strength to understand Paul's difficult words. We ask that you would help us to turn to you. We ask that you would give us renewed appreciation for what you have done in christ as we celebrate the sacrament of the lord's supper and we ask that you would help us to um as we see our identity in christ call one another on to a renewed identity and i just thank you for first corinthians it's a really helpful look um at how to get into some of these things so we pray these things in jesus name amen